0: I was very cold this morning. I tried to drive to church. I thought there was some just moisture on my windshield. Put my wipers on. It's it's actually ice. So I had to pull over and, and fix that because I couldn't actually see where I was driving. So uh, that's a tip for you for your driving today. Don't drive if you can't see where you're going. Uh, yeah, so we're we giving you some handouts because we want you to actually digest personally the stuff that you hear on a Sunday morning. And really, we don't just gather together... Uh, for, for one of the team to actually come and preach the word, but to actually help you sort through how do you apply what you hear uh, once you go home and, and you live in your own street, in your own workplace, with your own family. How do you actually take the truth of God's word and make it part of your everyday life? And that's really what one of the things we do. We call that discipleship. So you've got a handout there. I'm talking this morning about grace and money. You ever heard those two words in the same sentence? Grace and money. And one of the, one of the strange things is, as I was reading and studying a parable we're going to unpack this morning, I realised, I sort of had illumination that we never think about God's grace in our relationship to money, but in actual fact I'm going to unpack for you today in the most misunderstood parable, That Jesus ever told. In fact, historically it's been ignored. A lot of early church fathers and theologians have not known what to do with it and I'll explain why in a few minutes. But I'm going to talk about grace and money. The idea that when we have an experience of God's grace in our lives personally, it should impact every area of our lives including our relationship, our attitude towards The money that we have, and this is not about how much money. This is not. I'm not preaching a sermon on you getting more money. Um, The principle that I'm going to teach you out of the parable of the shrewd manager in Luke 16 applies to every one of us, whether you are struggling to pay your bills, feed yourself, whether you are living in wealth or you have excess, whether you're in a financial time of crisis whether you can't afford to give, you know, when the offering comes around or whether you can afford to give lots. It's actually not about how much an individual has. The principle I'm going to unpack is the relationship between grace and money and it works whether you can only give a few dollars or you could give hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so this is the principle that we're going to unpack today. I encourage you to actually take notes on the back of the handout first. It's totally blank but I'm not going to give you those four points until later on. So, the relationship between grace and money. Do you know Jesus taught more about money than he did about heaven and hell? In fact, half of his parables include teachings on what we should do with our possessions, wealth and income. Half of his teachings that are recorded in scripture include his advice on what we do with what we have financially now of course in the culture that Jesus lived worked and was born into there were very few people that had any cash Uh, they were subsistence farmers a lot of people were slaves up until the age of 30 they were the only way they could live was to actually work for somebody else so it wasn't like, exactly like slavery in the modern era as we understand it. It was more like a place where you and your family had somewhere to live and work and were fed at the same time that you worked for the person um, you lived with. And so our, our sort of world now shifted. We live in an economy culture, not a farming culture. But the principle is exactly the same for us as it was for them. So why does Jesus talk so much about what we do with what we have, materially speaking, monetary speaking, or in terms of our wealth or our income? And I think it's because if we don't learn to manage our money according to God's plan, then money can actually manage us. It can take control of us. And our our desires or our attitudes towards what we have don't represent the way God expects his disciples, his children... To actually practice in their everyday life. So let's have a look at um, Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read the story to you. It'll come up on the screen as we go through it. But if you've bought your own Bible, anyone bought an actual printed real life, not an electronic on web, in your phone, a real life scribble in i encourage you to scribble in it today i scribble in my bible all the time in fact even this morning when i reread this parable the lord gave me some more thoughts and i got my pencil out and scribbled in my in my bible i encourage you to underline highlight it's not disrespecting the word of god because when you come back to it years later you'll be amazed at what the lord's already revealed to you so this is the parable luke 16 of a shrewd manager he's a crook Jesus uses the example of a crook to teach us about grace and money. And what? just before we open it and read it, it's actually in a sequence of four parables, back to back. Now, the, the first three occur in Luke 15, and most of us who have been in Christianity for any length of time will know the first three fairly well. In Luke 15, he's, he's, um, it starts off where Luke tells us the Pharisees, so these religious um, sort of critical um, legalistic spiritual leaders of his culture have a go at Jesus because as a holy man he's actually spending time with people who are unholy. The, the, old, the New Testament word is sinners. They, they were people that didn't follow God. Um, they weren't you know, religious as the Pharisees were. Jesus actually is hanging out with them. He's having dinners with them. He's talking to them on the streets. He's going back to their homes And as a holy religious rabbi, that was unacceptable. And so the other religious rabbis have a go at him. And so Luke tells us when the Pharisees have a go at him for hanging out for all these irreligious people, Jesus responds by telling four stories. The first one, Luke 15, right at the start of the chapter there, is about the lost sheep. You ever heard that story? So the shepherd has a 100, loses one goes off to find the one, brings it back. When he finds the one and brings the one sheep back to his fold of a hundred, he tells all his other shepherd friends that he's found the one sheep and a big party is thrown because he's found what he was lost. Then he tells another story straight away. A woman has a few coins, she loses a coin and so she turns her house upside down finding this one coin that she's lost. And when she finds the coin, she calls all her friends tells them she's found the coin, they throw a big party because she's found what was lost. You get this repetitious idea? Big party because what was lost has been found. Then the third story is what is traditionally called the prodigal son, which is actually not a very good title. The word prodigal does not appear in the scriptures itself. It's an added heading. And we know the story of, of, of a son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance, which of course, you know, culturally was was a terrible thing to do in that culture and so the father gives him what his inheritance would have been when the father died the the son goes off squanders all the money um, ends up coming home the father is waiting for his return accepts him and embraces him reclothes him puts the family signet ring on his finger throws a party calls all his friends but really that parable is about the older brother who's in the field doing stuff for dad and gets upset because dad never threw a party for him. Why would I come in when that son of yours, is the phrase, comes home and you welcome him in? Well, of course, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And so the, the illustration there is towards the Pharisees. They're, by them judging Jesus hanging out with unrighteous people, they're being like the older brother in the field. But then we get to this story we're about to read and unfortunately it gets left off those string of four stories because there's a chapter break in between the two, which is an unnatural break. It's actually put there around the 1500s. Historically the Gospels were read from start to finish without stopping, up until around the 1600s, 1500s where they got broken into chapters and then verses. So because of this unnatural break, we tend to stop reading. So... Let's read the fourth story of the shrewd manager. Luke 16 verse 1. Jesus told his disciples. So now get the picture here. He's he's just told the Pharisees in the crowd three stories. So now he turns to his disciples. He's still with the Pharisees, but he's telling his disciples a story with the Pharisees listening. So he says, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager says to himself, What am I going to do now? The master is going to take away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. So he, he says he's not strong enough to be a manual worker. I'm too ashamed to beg. I'll know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. I want you to take note of that phrase. I'm going to come back to that. People will welcome me into their homes. So he calls each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. So the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and let's make it 1,500. Cuts it in half. Pretty shrewd, hey. Verse 7. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, let's make it 24. Cuts it by 20%. Verse 8. The master, now listen to this. This is Jesus' explanation of his story. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. That's a little bit confusing, isn't it? Is Jesus commending dishonesty? crookedness no no few crooks in the world might work with some live next door to some some people think politicians are crooks or car salesmen are crooks or he he the master commends the shrewd manager or the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light just think about, ponder on that one for a moment. The people of the world are more shrewd than dealing in their own kind or with their own people than God's children in dealing with other children of God. I tell you, and that's an emphatic statement, this is Jesus really saying, now really listen to me. That When he says I tell you, it's, it's a it's a Greek way of saying, give me your total attention now. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now notice the link between that phrase, being welcomed into eternal dwellings, and the phrase in verse 4 where the manager says, people will welcome me into their homes. Verse 10. This is still Jesus unpacking his story. Who can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? In other words, God's riches, spiritual wealth. In verse 12, and if you have been not trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, now remember the Pharisees got the first three stories thrown at them because of Jesus hanging out with unrighteous people. Now in the midst of that, Jesus used the opportunity to teach his disciples a spiritual principle about grace and money. The Pharisees are still listening so they jump in at this point. They're back in the conversation. The Pharisees, who loved money, Luke is telling us, they ha- they were they loved their possessions and wealth. They heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. So Jesus says to them, "You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people highly value is detestable in God's sight." Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Everybody said. I don't believe you for a second. They said, it's going to finish good, I trust me. Grace and money. What on earth is Jesus telling a story about a crook who steals his master's money, embezzles it for his own benefit, gets fired by his boss and then calls in the debtors to his master and says, listen, let's, let's reduce your bill. And then Jesus says, because he did that, because of his shrewdness, this guy should be followed. And we should be dealing with each other in the same manner, using our money to actually be welcomed into eternal homes. And what is Jesus talking about in teaching the disciples a truth about grace and money? Now it might be shocking and frustrating to you to, to hear those words and to really, you know, I encourage you to reread them, digest them in the future. But a quick glance. I actually think, you know, we we look at the prodigal son, the the sort of the main story just before it, and it's so warm and fuzzy. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear a story of an undeserved boy, a brat, who wastes everything, but the love of the father brings him straight back in. There's no judgment. He's not punished for it. He's straight back into the family. I mean, that is so warm and cosy. We can Christianize and tell that story until the cows come home. We love it. But then we jump into the very next story which follows on from the same principle where Jesus actually uses someone who's dishonest to teach a kingdom principle about grace and money. They're like they're in two different worlds. Now, historically, most people have actually ignored this fourth story because it's hard to digest and try to unpack and understand. Um, In in modern terms, it's, it's like what they call a picture picaresque story a picaresque story is when the hero has a villain side to him but is so likable and at one point at least he does one right thing which helps somebody else now a lot of modern movies are like that aren't they a lot of tv series are built on that idea so that the actual the hero of the story is flawed but amongst all his dysfunction and flawedness he does something that's right that helps somebody else We sort of get the... We're used to these type of stories in our culture. I don't think they were used to them in Jesus' culture. But listen, you know, there's striking similarities between the prodigal son and the shrewd manager story. Let me point out a couple to you. You can write these down on the back of that handout. Both of them took money that wasn't theirs. wasn't rightfully theirs. The prodigal son wasn't supposed to access that money until his father was literally dead. And an incredible... Act of shaming his dad, he forced his father to hand over the cash before he had died. And in the second story, in our story today, the shrewd manager is using his boss's money to actually feather his own nest. So both of them uses someone else's money for their own personal gain. Another point, which is similar between the two. The son, in the prodigal story, has to throw himself on the mercy of his dad when he gets home. The shrewd manager has to throw himself on his boss's mercy when he's called to account. They both are dependent on the mercy of someone in authority over them. Third one, both the son and the manager have betrayed the trust of the very person who loved them. Now, we don't quite get it. We might get it in the prodigal son story. In the shrewd manager story, we don't quite get it. But that manager had somewhere to live while he worked for that rich man who owned land. When he lost the job, he's got nowhere to go. And that's why the focus on if I actually... If once I'm out of here, I have to find a home that will welcome me in. People need to, well, I have to go somewhere to live. Both of them, in the prodigal son and the shrewd manager, become homeless because of their own foolish decisions. Another one. Both the son and the manager have nothing to show for themselves after wasting, and like a misspent life or, or... taking a little bit of wealth and actually misusing it and ending up destitute. Another one, another common thing. Both the son and the manager are in dire straits. Their choices have landed them in an absolute crisis. They have no food, they have nowhere to live, they have no future, they have no hope. Neither of them have any future without the dependency of the person they just betrayed. Another one. Both of them have nowhere to live. They're homeless. Both stories focus on being welcomed back into a home. So the son goes home. The shrewd manager, through the story, Jesus keeps pointing out, the manager says, if I, if I do something good now, people will welcome me into my home. And then when Jesus explains it, Jesus himself says to us as disciples, use your own money to gain friends so you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings, internal homes. And here's the key, which we don't really get in English. There's a, there's a phrase that's repeated in the original Greek in both stories. And in English, it can be translated as squandered. So if you've got your Bibles there, you can see it in Luke 15 verse 13. The son squanders his father's money. But the same word that's written in the original language is repeated in Luke 16.1 where the shrewd manager wastes. So the word is wasted in English. They translate it slightly different. It's the same word. So the original hearers link the two stories together because the thing that ties them together is both the son and the manager waste the finances that were put into their hands. They both simply squander it. But here's the twist. Both the son in the previous story and the manager experience undeserved grace. So the son is welcomed back into the family home in the prodigal son. In the shrewd manager story, the boss commends his crooked employee. He gets a commendation from his employee. Both of them don't reap what they sow. It's grace. After the a lifetime of getting it wrong for the son and the manager, they finally get something right, both of them. The son's not banned from the family or excluded. The father actually extends open-ended love, which is Grace. The manager is not jailed by his boss, which in that culture he should have been immediately thrown into jail for that embezzlement. And yet he's not. He's called to account, but he's not thrown into jail, which he should have been by the cultural norms. The son gets an extravagant party from his dad and the manager gets a commendation from his boss. It's grace. Both of these stories leave us not with a list of things that we should do, so, like, do one, two, three, four, five, six, and you'll be right with God. What both stories do is give us an invitation to respond to God's grace. That's what they do. Now, contextually, because we don't live in this ancient farming culture, let me tell you why the story makes sense to Jesus' first listeners the disciples, the Pharisees, and the crowd that were around him. The rich young man, or the rich man, sorry, is a person who owns probably multiple blocks of land and he's leasing them out to farmers and the farmers don't pay him cash for the lease agreement. They pay him in kind by the produce that they actually make on the land and this was a common practice in the ancient world. So if you own land and I was a farmer and I was looking for some land to farm, I would approach you, we'd make an agreement... And then what I produce, you would get so much percentage of whatever I make and that's your payment. The manager in the story is actually acting in our world and language. He's like a real estate agent. So he's acting for his boss who owns all these parcels of land and he's managing those parcels of land and dealing directly with the farmers who are leasing that land and he's the one that signs the contract with the farmer on behalf of his boss to make sure his boss gets a a good return for the leasing of the land but in this culture even though it was technically illegal and frowned upon it was common practice for these managers to add their own personal comfort tax to the to the amount that was owed so in reality some theologians say when he goes back and reduces the amount that, that they owe, so the first one he cuts it from 30,000 litres to 15,000 litres of oil, it's really he's taking off his own personal embezzlement where he's feathering his own nest but under the guise of that's his boss's rate for leasing the land. He's actually doing an immoral and illegal thing and he gets caught by his boss. That's really what's going on in the story. So he inflates the price being charged to the farmers now the key to understanding this parable is that he's called to account but he doesn't face punishment just like the son in the previous story. He has to give an account to his father when the son comes home but he's not punished. He's actually accepted back. And in the, in the shrewd manager story that we're reading today it's the same principle. He's called to account but he actually doesn't face jail. He should have immediately been put In prison. So the manager, for the first time, like the son in the previous story, experiences grace. They enter a new world that is not in their culture. Their culture was a harsh punishment culture. It was hard living conditions. People starved to death. You know, jobs weren't, there were hardly any jobs. Most people had no income at all and lived off working for somebody else that's the only way you could feed yourself it was a harsh cultural environment to live in and instead of getting the punishment they deserved for their choices and actions for the first time they enter a new experience of grace without punishment that's the key to understanding this parable and even the prodigal son parable The improbability of not facing harsh consequences for the things that you deserve. It shouldn't work, but it did. They should not have got grace. The shrewd manager should have been put in jail, but he wasn't. It's undeserved, and yet it's granted by his boss. It's a contradiction in our moral, ethical hearts or values or mindsets. But it's the nature of God. The nature of God is... He'll, he'll pronounce judgment at the same time he grants grace. He doesn't punish us. He pronounces judgment. Well, he's done that for us through Jesus, his son. Judgment has been made on our misgivings and misdeeds. But at the same second, the same breath, we get grace. So the manager, hey, this is countercultural to his experience. In fact, what I think happens is, after that experience of, the, of his boss saying to him, hey, I've heard what you're doing, bring all your books and I'm gonna, you have to come and give me an account of what you've been up to. But because he's not immediately thrown in jail, he now risks everything. The little bit of future he's got left, he thinks he's about to be fired, be homeless, be starving, he might have to beg, he says I can't be a labourer. So he risks everything on the character of his boss that he's just experienced, that he wasn't immediately thrown into prison. He says, my boss is graceful. I better start acting the same way. So he calls in the farmers and says, how much do you owe? Let's cut that in half. So he's basically, in this world of brutality, he's actually passing on what he just experienced. So the manager has a plan. I'm going to risk all my future because without, without this risk, I've got no future. I'm going to starve to death. I've got nowhere to live. But he passes on his gracefulness. That's the twist in the story. He's risking everything. He has a new plan to reduce the debt of the people that he was overcharging. So this is not a moral story. Don't all go out and be crooks after this Sunday, you know and charge people excess when you have the opportunity. That's not the point. The point is, for both the prodigal son and the shrewd manager, they both go from squandering their money to actually being prudent with their money. Grace, our encounter with grace, changes our relationship to our money as God followers, as disciples. If if we're still stingy and not generous or if we're not contributing to what God is doing in the world through our finances, then we haven't really encountered God's grace. Because it's supposed to change what we do with what we've got in our hands, whether it's a little or whether it's a lot. And this this is really the lesson out of the Shrewd Manager parable, is trying to get into our heads and into our hearts, that if God has truly pronounced judgment but then also shown grace to us, then the practical material stuff we have, like the cash in our wallet, the amount in your bank account, the wealth in your home, you shift from using that just for your own self-interest to actually using it for what God is interested in. That's the point of the parable. Go from squandering self-interest to being prudent or shrewd. Now, the word shrewd actually in, in the original language, most of the time in your New Testament, is translated wise. So when you read the word the shrewd manager, it's actually the wise manager. You could translate it that way. But the reason translators keep sort of the old English word shrewd in there is because he has this crookedness to his character at the start of the story. But Jesus says, because he's almost like, he's got street smarts on how to survive. He's been surviving like this his whole life. But once he encounters judgment and grace with no punishment, he actually takes that street smart way of living and then applies it to his everyday choices. And he changes his behavior based on the grace he just encountered. So here's four truths. You can flip over your little handout there. Here's four truths about Grace and money. Grace and money go together as disciples of Christ. Number one. This will come up on the screen. Grace changes the ownership of my money. You don't own it. You think you might own it. Now, some of you are probably thinking there and say, well, I haven't got much. It doesn't matter. But it's not the amount. Now, we know... If you've been in church life for a little bit of time, you know there's a principle that's repeated right throughout Scripture and that is God owns the whole earth and everything in it because he created it. It's not, we don't, in kingdom thinking, we don't live in a a cash economy based on the stock market or the value of the dollar. We actually live in a different economy and that economy is God owns everything that's in my current possession. You didn't own the money that you've currently got before you arrived on the planet and you're certainly not going to take it with you the day you die. You're a manager. So the ownership of what we have shifts when we encounter God's grace. We stop using it for our own self-interest like the manager was and actually use it to gain eternal friendship, as Jesus puts it, that will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Other people will get into the kingdom of God if we use our money the way God intends us to use our money. And you can apply this to resource, wealth, it doesn't just have to be cash, but anything that we have, my ownership is shifted from being I own it to actually it's God's. And because of the grace He's shown me, I'm going to use it for other people to experience the same grace that I've got, that I have right now. Grace and money go together. So it's not yours, but it's God's money. That's the point. It wasn't, the, in this parable of the prodigal son, it wasn't the son's money. It was the father's money. In the parable of the shrewd manager, it's not the, the manager's money, it's his boss's money. That's the point. There's a, there's, a, there's a theme running through here. So how well you take care of God's money matters to God. It matters to God. And we know Psalm, this is not on the screen, but Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. You, me, all the material stuff that mankind produce and the wealth that we think we generate. Everything belongs to God. He created everything. He sustains everything. So the ownership of money shifts the minute I encounter God's grace. So in the story, it wasn't... The manager's money. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. We don't really own every, anything. God owns it all. It wasn't ours at any point really, but our grace experience with a loving God shifts it for us. We're all managers or stewards of what we have. It's a temporary resource, money, but we should be using it for eternal purposes. Number two, grace changes the accountability of my money. I'm not accountable any longer to how I spend my money as a disciple. One day, I have to give an account to God. And again, this is a consistent theme taught throughout Scripture. One day, all of us will stand before God and we have to give, well, let me call it a life audit. We have to tell God what we did with what he gave us. And it's not just taught here where the manager says to the steward, come and bring all your books, you have to give an account to me. It's not just here we hear that idea, we hear it in plenty of other verses, Romans 14, 12. Clearly Paul tells us that each of us will have to give an account to God, a life audit, what we've done with what God gave us. So the point is God's entrusted us with practical material assets but what we do with them with our time on earth should shift the minute we experience God's grace. Grace and money go together. Not in our world's view, but in God's view. So I will give an account to God one day for what, all the stuff that came through my hands, including my money. So the principle is true for every area of life, but I'm just applying it to money. So grace changes my ownership of money, And grace changes my accountability. I have to now give an account to God, not just to myself or my family. Number three, grace changes how I use money. Now this was in the parable very thick. The the manager says, I better start cutting the debts of the people I've ripped off because then at least I'll build some friendships and when I'm homeless because I'm losing my job, they'll bring me into their homes. I'll have some friends to depend on because that was the culture they lived in. And then Jesus actually says when he explains the parable to his disciples, he actually says, "Use your worldly wealth to gain eternal friends." Because that's that's the heart of God. A graceful, loving father doesn't just want us to experience his grace, he wants everybody to experience his grace. And the practical resource of money and wealth and possessions helps us to actually preach the gospel, minister to the poor, feed, you know, feed the homeless, help the widows, minister to the orphans, run different things that we feel as, as a local church God's asking us to do. So the resource we have now, the use of what I've got, is not just up to me. I have to align my focus to where God has asked me to put it. So now I use my money differently. It's on God's priorities. The principle here is that we're managing stuff and if we, are, if we do see it as God's wealth, then we have to use it according to God's priorities and principles, the things that where his heart's at. So, of course, in Luke 16, verse 14 and 15, the Pharisees complain about this story. Let me just read these two verses back to you again. The Pharisees who loved money heard what Jesus was saying and they sneered at Jesus. And so he says to them, You are the ones who justifies yourself in the face of others. So in the world, you can justify spending money on yourself, collecting goods, hoarding, building a better life for yourself. You can justify that to other people in the world. You can do that. They'll understand it, they agree with you. But God knows your heart. And it says, then Jesus says, what people highly value is actually detestable to God. God doesn't value bigger homes or better jobs or more money in the bank. God values the relationship between grace and money. And that should be reflected in how we use our money. I am no longer have total control over what I do with how much I earn, save and even how I spend it. So it means that my money is supposed to be used, helped to be used to build relationship with people so they find the grace that I've found through Jesus. We have to use any affluence we've got, any, any resource or excess that we have for what God is already doing around us in other people's lives who don't know him yet or are suffering a crisis. So Matthew 6 verse 19 and 21 it's not on the screen but most of you will know what it says jesus says don't store up treasure on earth where shall we store it in heaven so that's the question for us again this principle is actually right throughout scripture that in actual fact are we earthly storers or heavenly storers what what investments are we making whether you have a little or a lot what investment are you making for yourself? Because what you do with your money now actually helps to determine some of your eternal future and the future of other people at the same time. So grace changes my ownership of money. Grace changes the accountability of my money. And grace changes the use of my money. And the fourth one as I finish. Grace and money is a character test from God. It's about my faithfulness, or so in the story we read, the English translation says trustworthy. So, if you go back to um, the end of Luke chapter six, uh, sorry, Luke sixteen verse eleven and twelve, Jesus says, in explaining the parable to his disciples, if you have not been trustworthy, which is faithful, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy, faithful in someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So really Jesus is saying there's a direct connection between your maturity and your money. There's a direct connection. Who's going to trust you with more if you're not faithful in following God's priorities with the stuff that he's given into your hands? So God really deserves, and He insists that grace, our experience of God's love, should shift the way we think and use our money. And this—we're not taking up an offering at the end of this sermon, by the way. This is not about getting you to give more on the spot. In fact, what I'd, I what I want to challenge you to do is just look at where you spend your money. And it doesn't align with God's priorities. That's all you have to do. You're thinking, that's all I have to do, right? But that's the point here, that as we apply this principle to our lives, that if we've experienced God's grace, it's going to change our relationship towards money. All the time, everywhere. Not just on Sunday morning, but everywhere. When we see someone in need, when when one of our neighbours is struggling... Even, I mean, you think of the stories, that other things that Jesus did, like the widow putting the little coin, that she, the only little coin she had left, puts it in the poor box in the synagogue and Jesus commends her. She went without so other poorer people could have something. I mean, we, we know all this stuff in our heads, but it's got to get into our hearts. If you just look at your budget, some of you are thinking, I don't have a budget, right? Get a budget, make a budget, but line it up with the priorities that God has. Align your heart to God's heart because that's what grace does. If, you know, To me, if we're stingy, again, it doesn't matter how much you earn or how much you have or don't have, but you can be stingy even if you have very little. You can be stingy if you have a whole lot. But that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is generosity. The heart of God is releasing the gospel and that takes money to do that. It takes money to minister to people in this physical world we currently live in. It's not, we don't worship money. Jesus is where your treasure is, your heart will be there also when he talks about not storing it up on earth. And so our relationship to money has to be different to the rest of the people in the world that live around us because we've experienced God's grace and that changes what we do with it. Why don't we stand together? Just want you to close your eyes. Father God, I just want to thank you for your incredible undeserved love that all of us in this room have probably experienced and to live counter to our culture that tells us we should save more, we should invest, we should have the latest thing, we should have the best home, we, we should have the greatest job. We, we live in a world, God, that tells us, tries to dictate what we do with our money. But may your Holy Spirit change us from the inside so our hearts reflect our accountability, our use, our ownership, and that it lines up that when you test our faithfulness, that you will see us actually using what you've given us the way that you've asked us to use it, whether it's a little or a lot. So Lord, I pray for wisdom over every person as they listen to this message right now that your Holy Spirit would speak to them. And if there's something that we have to change, something we have to sow into, something we have to stop spending on, something we have to give towards, whatever those things are, Lord, that line up with your kingdom heart of grace, may it change our behaviour from this day on. May, Lord, our actions reflect the incredible loving grace that you have shown us in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen.